Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, if you have one. We've been walking through 2 Corinthians. Our norm here at Sojourn is to, to go through books of the Bible. And we are a couple weeks out from being done with 2 Corinthians. And here's what we're going to do next. So we've got the next nine weeks or so, we're going to be looking at the, what are essentials for Sojourn. So Sojourn essentials. Why do we exist and what are the core elements of us as a, a body of Jesus Christ? And so that will be coming up next. But we have the next two weeks to, to finish out 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. And we're, today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 11. So hear the word of the Lord or follow along on the screen. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were we, you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And if I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and for all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practice. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, help us please to turn to this book as not just another book. But to turn to it as a book that is holding your very words. And is your authority over us. And so help us to turn to these words today. And not hear the words of a man, but hear the words that come from you. And not know just content or seek information, but to know the God who wrote these words. God, if that's going to happen, we're going to need your help. So break into our lives this morning, we pray. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I think that each of us has a desire in us to be treated not for what we can do or what we can give someone else, but for who we are. I think this is clear in ads that you see all over TV. I think this is clear just in our own personal desires. We live in this technological age where sometimes it can be hard if you call a customer service representative to actually get a person who will be a representative. Right? You go through machine after machine or you dial a bunch of numbers only to hear another message. We, we long to actually talk to a person. There's this desire in us to, to actually connect with another person so that we're not treated as a number or as a statistic but as a human being that has problems or issues that we want to work out. I think that this was tapped into when you think about a few of the shows that you see on TV that were popular. One was called Cheers. You might have heard of Cheers. If you're a little younger, you might not have heard of Cheers. 
is Cheers had this famous theme song where it says, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And that really tapped into this desire for people to go to a place where they feel like they have belonging. Where they feel like they are a person, where they're there. They don't have to be someone or or give something up. They can be received for, for who they are. State Farm, they're smart. They know these things. So they plugged that theme song into one of their commercials a couple years back to to get customers to understand that that they're trying to put a personal touch on things, that they actually know your problems and that you're not going to go through a bunch of machines with them. Whether or not that's true is up for the consumer to decide. But there's this desire in us to to have someone concerned for us and not what we can give them. And, And Paul in this passage shows this genuine concern for the Corinthians And it's seen in how he seeks after them. And in fact, he kind of accuses his opponents of not seeking the Corinthians themselves, but what they can receive from the Corinthians. And so Paul works against that, seeking not what what he can get from these Corinthians, but he's seeking them. He seeks to build them up. He tells them the lengths he's willing to go to because he's so concerned for their formation, their growth in Christ Jesus. So in this... Paul calls us to show genuine concern for for others by seeking them, themselves, seeking their upbuilding and formation in Christ. So Paul, as we've seen in 2 Corinthians 12, is is kind of rounding out his foolish speech. He's been working on this foolish speech in defense of his ministry for quite a while. And he's reconfirming here his apostleship to them again. Verse 11 says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I I ought to have been committed by you. For I was not at all in fear to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. So Paul feels like he was kind of awkwardly forced into this foolish boast before these Corinthians. When what he says should have happened is that you should have been commending me. You should have had my back. Now he's not saying, and he hasn't been saying all along, that the Corinthians should have had his back because he was a better speaker. Because he was better at this skill of oratory. Because he was wiser than everybody else. He wasn't saying, I looked the part, so you should have my back. It's not what's going on. He says, you should have my back because I'm your apostle. Because I brought the gospel to you. Because of what is connected to Because of the content of my message. You might know in, in baseball, if, if someone gets in a fight in baseball, I'm assuming this happens in softball too, I don't know, I've never seen a brawl in softball, but in baseball, if someone on your team gets in a fight, or if you see this on TV, what immediately happens is that anybody who's in the dugout, or even in the bullpens, which are in the outfield in, in the major leagues, right? Anybody that sees their teammate in a fight, they jump out and rush to join the fray. And they're not, they, they come after their teammate. They're not going to let their teammate go it alone. Regardless of how good of friends they are, if they have the same jersey on, they're going after the other team on behalf of their own player. And Paul is saying, you guys should have committed me. I'm out there in the fight, and you're sitting in the dugout watching me go after it with these guys when you should have jumped in as well. Now, if someone is, is taking shots, he says, you guys should have come along and commended me. Speaking to the, to the faithful, come along and, co- and commend me. Should have had my back in this. If someone is, is taking shots at, at one of us, and, and it seems like from the Scripture it's pretty clear that if we're doing things right, they will, then, then we need to go to bat courageously for one another. Courageously commending one another. And here's another reason why, why membership is important for sojourn. is because we're saying that as much as we can be with membership, that we're together. 
So that when someone says something or, or does something against one of our team, we, we can courageously come in. Not because we, we agree on every single issue, but because we agree on these core essentials that we say, this is what it means to be a sojourner. And we come with them in a fight. Because we agree in, in content, in what we trust in and believe in. And because of this, we can courageously commend one another because we know we're on the same page. We're wearing the same jersey. We can go in the fight together. Now this has been several years back, but I've heard before there's, there's people who, who haven't liked my style of preaching. To which I say, like, I agree. Like, I wish I preached like Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon or name the guy. Like, I can actually agree with him, so maybe we should get together and say, like, you're probably right. But I never had to speak to that issue because a faithful brother stepped up in my place and committed, not necessarily my style and how great I am, but the content. No, we agree on the content and we're together. We can agree and be together and we can commend one another because of the content for one another that we agree with and share. And this is what Paul is saying. You guys are in the dugout when you should have been joining the brawl. Like, I'm out here going against these opponents that are coming after you and the faithful should step up and commend me as well. But that's not what's happening. This is the way we should be with each other because we agree with one another. Because we agree. This is what the Scripture says. We want to live that out. This is our standard. We're going with that. And the faithful in the Corinthian church could have done this legitimately. Paul's not saying just like, come up with something. Just be on my team just because. No, they could have done this legitimately because Paul's saying, I'm not inferior to these super apostles. I've I've given you the content. You've seen my lives. He he wasn't saying I'm a better speaker. He wasn't saying I'm, I'm more powerful, more influential than these guys. But he's saying that doesn't define apostleship. Those guys are saying that they're super apostles. But look at the content of my message and of my life. And so Paul reminds them of this. You should have commended me. You should have had my back. And he says, I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. And then he says this, even though, even though I am nothing. Paul wants them to have his back even though he says he's, he's nothing. Paul, if we read the Scripture, Paul is not nothing. (laughs) Paul has written several books of the Bible. Paul has given us so much good content in the Scripture. Paul is not nothing. He's going around planting churches, seeing the gospel at work through his work, seeing churches planted and formed, seeing them flourish and send out people like Paul is not nothing. But in a way, Paul, Paul very much is nothing. Right, Because Paul wasn't sitting around one day as this Jewish man growing up in this Jewish culture saying, You know what, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go live really hard for Christ. I'm going to go see this gospel movement take place through my life. So let's just go get that done. That's not what happened. I and mean, we've heard about this before, but Paul wasn't sitting around saying these things. God got a hold of Paul. Jesus interrupted Paul's journey actually against him and turned him around. By grace, Paul was saved through Christ Jesus. And it wasn't Paul's message that he's delivering. He didn't say, you know what, this will be a message that will be really catching. It will catch on in Corinth and Thessalonica and everywhere. No, he's trusting in the message that Christ gave him, that he received, and he's going with that message. So Jesus got a hold of Paul. Jesus gave Paul his message. He saved him and he even sent him. Say, you go to the, to the Gentiles. Start a work among the Gentiles. Oh, and here's a thorn, by the way, in case you do think that you're strong. To remind you that it's not you, but it's me and my power working in and through you. All of these things were not to display Paul. He's nothing. We're using Paul as a vessel to display the power and greatness of God. 
And so Paul's reminder that here's nothing here is not saying I'm inferior. He's saying God is at work here. That's what we need to be looking at if you're the Corinthians. He told them in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted. Apollos, he, he watered, but God gave the growth. So it's neither he who plants or he who waters anything. But God, but God who gives the growth. And so he reminds them of God's power that's working through him as an apostle. As he continues, he says this. In verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now this would have been something the Corinthians could have cheered about, right? You're like, we love the flashy signs. They love that stuff. The style of it, the flair. They would have liked those things. We saw a lot of issues with that when we went through 1 Corinthians. They liked the, the flashy things that were going on. And Paul certainly performed plenty of these. We read in Acts 19. That God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Like, yes, let's sign up for that, right? We get a handkerchief from Paul here and we can start doing some work. That's what the Corinthians would have liked, they would have hoped for. But we don't see signs and miracles, at least reported or recorded in the scripture that Paul did in Corinth. Now, the Corinthians surely would have known what he was talking about here, but we just don't see them recorded either in Acts or in First and Second Corinthians. In fact, it even seems like he kind of holds those things back from them a little bit, since he doesn't speak in tongues amongst them. But Paul doesn't highlight any of those miraculous, big, major signs that we would think of as miraculous signs of an apostle, like handkerchiefs being sent out and, and demons fleeing people. That's the one that you could have pointed out, and everybody could have cheered and rallied around that, but Paul doesn't do that. He hasn't highlighted any of that stuff with the Corinthians. So what does he highlight over and over with the Corinthians? What he highlights is the transforming work of the Spirit. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, if you remember this, he says, you yourselves are a letter of recommendation. He, not, not our signs. You yourselves, because what were they displaying? He goes on. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of heart. So he, if he's going to recommend himself, he says, look at these Corinthians, we didn't do this work. The Spirit transformed them. That's our letter of recommendation. That's what he points to over and over again. And so Paul is carrying out this ministry of the gospel Showing and pointing to over and over again, not his power, not his strength, not his greatness, not his science. He's pointing to the transforming work that God is doing by his spirit in their lives. He tells them in 2 Corinthians 12 that he does this with patience. All patience he does this. He lived with them for 18 months, we see in Acts chapter 18. He, he visited them several times. He, he says in this passage here coming up, he's going to visit them for a third time. So several visits when moving around and traveling around wasn't the easiest things. We see he was always in danger every time he traveled. He's written them letters. He's poured out prayers and he's done this with patience to them. They certainly didn't get the short end of the stick as a church, though that seems to have been the rumor. Verse 13, in what way were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Now, Paul here is being a little sarcastic. I mean, I don't think he's actually asking for forgiveness. So I appreciate that from Paul. Thank you for that. It gives me justification when I'm sarcastic in my life. But Paul had to reconfirm his apostleship 
his authentic ministry to them over and over and over again. This is, this is patience from a man who spent a lot of life with them, taught them a lot, and yet they're still coming against him, still won't rally around him. Yet Paul says he's, he's patient with them and that he didn't wrong them in any way. They weren't less favored than other churches. He didn't burden them, meaning he didn't take pay from them. It was a big deal with the Corinthians, as we'll see as we go on. I myself didn't burden you. Forgive me this wrong. So Paul here is reconfirming his apostleship over and over and over again with patience. And it seems like he's going to extreme. Like, I'm amazed when I look at this passage how patient Paul is with you. How many times have we have said in our lives, like, that's enough. I'm done with you. I'm moving on. We've said it in lesser ways in our lives in one way or another, I promise you. And yet, this is what Paul is willing to go through in order to show the authenticity of his ministry and of the gospel that he proclaims. And at times in our lives, this may be what it takes to reconcile. And that's what Paul's doing, right? He's trying to reconcile with these Corinthians, both with the the people he feels like are faithful and his opponents. He wants to bring them all in. And so he's patient with them. He's ministering to them. He's writing to them. Even 12 chapters of opponents coming against him. He's writing back to them because he loves them. And it seems as if from Paul that he knows that it's worth it. He doesn't feel like he's wasting his time. And it might take us speaking the truth in love over and over and over again. Over long periods of time to see the work of reconciliation happen. And so we dig in. We don't hold back. We, we dig in. We move toward. Just as Paul does. He, he doesn't move away, even though that would have been our tendency. Paul likely had some prayers where like, God, you just get this church to somebody else. I want to move out of here. But he doesn't do that. He, he digs in. And this is what we have to do. We have to move toward people in reconciliation. It might take long periods of time of speaking the truth and love over and over and over again. But isn't that what we'd want God to do with us? And it was worth it to Paul because he had this genuine concern for these Corinthians for their spiritual well-being, for their formation in Christ Jesus. And his concern leads him to return to Corinth, as he says in verse 14. He says, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you and not be a burden. Not be a burden to you. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to take pay once again when I come to you. That was his pattern. It's clear when we read this that one of his opponent's main arguments against him had to do with money. It had to do with receiving or not receiving pay. So at that time, once again, teachers, great speakers, they received paying clients. If you were good at what you did, people would pay you to do it. They would pay you to speak to them, pay you to teach them. That was the the norm for the Corinthian culture. If you were good, you not only got paid, you had a following. You had enough people around you. They gained status, power, influence by, by these kind of methods. Well, Paul comes in and he doesn't do any of that. Doesn't take their pay. Doesn't take the influence that that could have received him. He doesn't want a part of that kind of gain. Now, Paul not taking pay doesn't seem like a big deal to us. We're like, great, you you didn't burn the church. That sounds awesome for a church. Don't burden them. But for them, that would have been shameful. Working with your hands to provide for yourself would have been worse. The elite would have despised this from Paul. They would not have liked this at all. And so likely what his opponents are saying is something like this. See, this is not the apostle that you want. You know, Paul, look at him. He, he, he not only doesn't receive favor from you, he works with his own hands on top of that. He looks like a bad apostle. And not only that, because he's your apostle, because he's our apostle, 
Doesn't that reflect on us? Don't we look like a bad church because that's our apostle? Don't we want more honorable apostles? Maybe even super apostles? People that will take your pay willingly, gladly. That's what they could have been saying. And Paul's saying, I'm not going to come. I'm going to come again. I'm not going to burden you. And that was strategic for him. And it was specifically because he's concerned for them. He says in verse 14, going on, I seek not what is yours, but you. Not what is yours, but you. Paul doesn't take pay because he knows the the connotations, the associations they would have had with taking pay. And he says, I'm coming to you and I don't have an angle with you, Corinthians. I don't have something I'm trying to gain from you other than what I'm giving you, the gospel. I want you guys. I want them. They are his agenda, not money. They are his agenda, not, not influence, not power. He doesn't want to be famous. He wants them to know Christ. This was not the super apostles angle, apparently. They were seeking power or influence or money or whatever they could gain in those regards. They definitely supported this this model of of them being kind of the the patrons to the church so they could gain a following and influence. And Paul comes in and says, I'm not seeking those things, I'm seeking you. Paul's concern was for them and not what was theirs. And I'm afraid that that attitude is becoming a very rare posture in our world. And we see this all the time in TV and radio. Surely we've, we've trained you enough not to listen to a lot of those guys. But they are constantly seeking money. Constantly seeking support. There are people, leaders, Christians, speakers, authors, all these They're seeking people, not for, their, not for the people themselves, but so that maybe they could gain a little bit of fame and notoriety. So that they could maybe author a book that could gain them some money. So that they could get on the, 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 the tour of, of getting in conferences. Gaining power and influence and books and all those things that way. But this isn't just true for church leaders. You know, people join churches for all sorts of different reasons. You might join a church so that you can increase your sales of your business. You go to a powerful, rich, influential church. You start to know the people. Pretty soon you start to build up a clientele through that might join a church to be seen. To get some notoriety from some people in the community that you respect or that you want to get some notoriety from. You might join a church for your own status. All these things are worth going. And there's no doubt that this is present in our world. And they're following the pattern of Paul's opponents here. And our word to you is, is don't trust those kind of people. They will bail when things get hard. They'll get out of the way when there's nothing more for them to gain. If they're leaders, they'll lead astray. They'll run when the wolves come attacking the sheep. Like hired hands. They won't say true things that are hard things to you because they're not willing to go that kind of distance with you because they don't have anything to gain from it. They'll be constant consumers. We need to trust those who have this genuine concern, not for what is ours, but us. Pastors who seek you, and not what you can give them. A community that does the same. See, we need people who will live life with us when there's nothing for them to gain. Other than being obedient and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will stand with you in your suffering. 
who will say true things to you, hard things to you, speak the truth and love to you when they only have a relationship to lose. That's the kind of people we need to be surrounded by. Paul's genuine concern for them is not just his own thing. This is a reflection of someone's, someone else's concern. A greater concern that Paul knows very well. This is a reflection of God's concern. You see, Jesus Christ came not to be served, it says, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to inaugurate a kingdom as the king, but not the kind of kingdom we would think of. He's not starting this kingdom where He gets all the treasures and all the fame and all the, the, the power. Not here, not yet. That's coming soon. But He came to start this different kind of kingdom. One where people understand that He wants these people. You might remember this in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000, it says. There are likely over 10,000 in attendance. He feeds them all. They love Him. They want to make Him king. They're going to take Him by force and make Him king, it says. This is it. Jesus is like, this is your moment. You are a leader. You have your people now. Like, let's go start a war. This is a big enough army to do that. Now you have fame. You've got all these people surrounding you. Let's go let's storm the gates of Jerusalem. Kick out the Romans. This is your time. And what does Jesus do? Rally the troops? Say, come on, let's go. No, He, he gets away from them. He, he leaves them. He withdraws from them. Why? Because He didn't come to be that kind of king. He didn't come to be the king that they wanted. He came to be the king that we all need. And so He withdraws from that. He didn't come to gain this worldly following. He didn't come to get worldly fortune. He came for people. He wants those people. And because He wanted those people that He fed, He withdrew from them, refusing to be the kind of king that they wanted, and instead is working to be the kind of king that they actually needed. Amen. And this is true for us as well. Isn't it amazing to think about the reality that God wants us and not what we can provide? God wants us. This is so clear in the Scripture. You know how it's clear because He's constantly concerned for people that can't give Him anything. Right? God loves orphans and widows. They have nothing to offer Him. And he loves them. He wants them. Just throw us in the category there too. Because in all reality, we have nothing to offer God that would be of any substance that He would be impressed by it. And yet He comes after us. He wants us. We can go through the Scripture. Israel, small, tiny little nation, He wants them. Why? Because He's a good, loving Father. He goes after them. You can look at all these great people. Why are they so great? Because God wanted them. He made them something. Not because they had a ton to offer God. And this is so clear. God always wants these nobodies that have nothing to offer. Why does He want that? Because His goal is redeeming people. He wants us and not what He can get out of us. And Paul is coming with that same kind of concern for these Corinthians. He isn't trying to pad his stats. Not trying to, hey, hey, look at this Corinthian church. They're so awesome. That Doesn't that make me look good? No, he's seeking the Corinthians. And so what about us? Like, Why are you here? Why are you here? As sojourner, I would say that we exist to glorify God by making disciples. Our ministry is a ministry to people. It's people. We wonder what the ministry is. It's people. We want to reach people. We want people to know Christ. 
So we evangelize the lost and we, and we work to equip the saints. We're, we're doing these things because it's people and we carry this out not by a bunch of crazy things but by other people. Like we think you're a disciple, you can go make more disciples. This is what the Scripture has told us. That's what we want. We want people to be filled with this genuine loving concern for other people and to go. And we go with no angle. We're not trying to pat our stats. But because we're concerned for people. Authentic ministry is always a ministry to people who seek them for themselves and not what they can bring. Paul wanted these Corinthians. These opponents were seeking what they could give him. Paul says, I don't seek what you can give me, but you yourselves. Paul did this because he says, I'm more of a parent to you than, than, than a patron. If you look in 14 and 15. Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Spend and be spent. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul has a genuine concern for them. And out of his genuine concern for them, he says, I'm willing to spend. And I'm willing to be spent if that's what it takes because he cares about them. And Paul showed this in his life. He traveled even when it was dangerous. Even it was long. Even when it was hard. He traveled to them. He prayed for them, even when he didn't have a lot of sleep. Constantly being concerned. He had this pressure on him from all the church. He's praying for them. He's caring for them. He's going after them. He's spending his life for them. He's writing to them. Multiple times he writes to them, just so that he can show them his great love for them. Paul is more than willing to be spent for them. He suffers for them. We see that over and over again in 2 Corinthians, how he talks about how much I've suffered. All of this, not for what they could give him, but for them themselves. And he says he does it all gladly. This is the posture of a servants. One who would spend and be spent for them. And this is the posture of Paul's Lord. Who, in the last remaining hours of his life, doesn't say, let's just take it easy for a second, I've got the cross in front of me. But gathers around these smelly disciples that still haven't figured things out and have nasty feet, and he takes off his robe and he puts on a towel and he starts washing them who takes the form of a servant and washes their feet. And he didn't just want them to know that I'm washing your feet, although that's kind of disgusting and, and hard in and of itself. That's a great act of service. He says there's a better washing, a greater washing, a harder washing that's to come. And for the joy that was set before him, Jesus goes to the cross, serving His people. He was gladly spending Himself for His people. If you're an unbeliever here today, thanks for coming. Like We hope you feel welcome. But this is what is offered. You are at enmity with God because of your sin. But God loved you enough to gladly send His Son to be spent in order to bring you close to Him. In order to draw you near. This is the message of the Gospel that you need to believe in. And if you're a believer, you need to be reminded of how Jesus was spent for you. He spent His life for you. Amen. And you need to let that motivate us to go and do likewise. Jesus says to us, Mark 10, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Be someone who would give and serve to people, not seek what is theirs. Who would spend and be spent for people and not just see what they can receive. 
give and not take from people. I like what one author has said. It says that our culture feeds us the lie that the main goal in life is to climb the ladder of power and influence. Is this not the Corinthian church? Right? They, these super apostles, is this what they thought? You, you climb success by the ladder by power and influence. Climb up it. But Jesus says that all those things are found in descending. Not climbing up a ladder, going down. Jesus and His kingdom are on a collision course with the values of this fallen world. And He is calling us to align with Him. And the question is, are we? Are we aligning with this King and His kingdom? Or are we aligning with the world's kingdom? Have we taken the posture of a servant who would willingly, even gladly, spend and be spent because we're genuinely concerned for others? Consumerism has just run crazy in our culture. It's everywhere. It has this idea of just receive, 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 take, take, take. If you don't like something, switch. Just go get what you want. Have it your way. You do your thing and you can find a better fit. You just do whatever works best for you. This is all over our culture and has most definitely affected our lives in likely a lot of unrealized ways even. And all of, our, all of us, we find ourselves in one of three spots. We, we are the self-servant, where we do everything for our own good. We do everything to please us. We do everything just for us. We will go out and serve, but only so that we can gain something from it. That's one place we could be. The second place we could be is kind of the selective servant. Where we, we, we might serve, but we serve on our time and in our way. And, and likely in a place where we get the spotlight, where we get a little notoriety, where people see us, we like those kind of things. So we'll serve only if we get some spotlight. Right? We see that a lot from many different people. Or we are either the, the self-servant, the selective servant, or the servant of everybody. Where we are willing to spend and be spent out of genuine concern for people. Now the first two have this attitude of what's in it for me. But the third one can only be be lived out if we realize how much we've been served. Not just a foot washing. That's that's only a piece of it. We've we've been washed of our sins. That's how much you've been served. You've been served so much that your sin was so disgusting that God Himself took it to a cross and was brutally killed for that. That's the radical service that we've received. And when we've received that kind of service, and we're living in light of that kind of service, we go out, not as selective servants, but as servants of all. Because we've seen this is what our Lord has done for us. And if that is the service we've received, that can be enough for us. So now all of a sudden we're freed up to be servants of all. To not need any sort of spotlight. To not see what's in it for us because we've already received all that we need in Christ. The servants of all are people who seek people and not their stuff. Who are genuinely concerned. And they are the people who will spend and be spent for you. They are the people who will call you during your hard times. They are the people who will sit with you in a hospital room and sing hymns to you when you're suffering. These are the people who will take a meal to your house when you've had a newborn child. These are the kind of people who will clean your house when you're gone and too busy to do it. These are the kind of people who won't leave when things are hard. And these kind of things speak. And they say, I love you, I'm concerned for you, you're not forgotten. And don't we all want those kind of people in our life? And wouldn't we all say, yes, that's the kind of community I would want around me. That is the kind of friend I would long to have. 
And even as we think that, I realize that I'm not that kind of friend all the time to people. That sometimes I can be a selective servant. And so what are we to say to that? Well, the reality is that we aren't that kind of community. We aren't that kind of friend. I'm not that kind of pastor all the time. But Jesus is all those things perfectly. Never leaving us and serving us to its ultimate end. He went as far as He could go to serve us. And He says He's never leaving us. And He calls us to be that and be in that kind of community. So Jesus is that. He calls us to that kind of community. And then He sends us to be that kind of community to others. Paul says, I will gladly spend and be spent. He didn't burden them. He continues on 16 through 18. Not didn't burden you. Didn't take advantage of you. There's, There's integrity in his ministry. But he spent maintaining his integrity all the way through even without reciprocation. He spent and was accused of defending his ministry, as we see in verse 19, as to a jury. He says this, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Now to say that he's defending himself and his ministry is a little bit too narrow. And that's what they're saying. You're just making your case before the jury. And he's saying, well... Not exactly. You're you're making it a little bit too narrow because for Paul there's a much bigger picture than just defending his own life and his own ministry. See, he's not concerned with his own reputation here. He's not concerned with just arguing his case. He's not just seeking their approval. Paul is speaking in Christ, it says. He's confronting their falsehood with the gospel. Paul's defending of his own ministry is much, much bigger than just him. He's defending the gospel. He's defending Christ. And as an ambassador of Christ, he's pleading with them to be reconciled to God. He's bringing them, not his own message, but the message from the king. Saying, this is the message you need to hear. And so their rejection of him is not just a rejection of him. It's a rejection of the God that he serves, of the gospel that he brings, and of the Christ that he loves and serves. So in his concern and love, he mounts this defense. It's tied to something bigger than just his own life and reputation. Why? He tells us why. He's working for their upbuilding. All for your upbuilding, beloved. He is looking after their spiritual well-being. He's looking after their souls. Seeking their formation in Christ. This is Paul's concern. And and it seems as if he has much reason to be concerned. He says in verse 20, I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish... And that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility, slander and gossip, conceit and disorder. Not a list of things that you want to find when you go into a church. If you had shown up to Sojourn this morning and this is what you see here, you probably would have ran. And Paul says, I hope this isn't what we see here. He fears that they're still going to be in this kind of sin. In other words, practicing it, not turning away from it, not running away from it. And these sins listed, if, if practiced aren't even the main problem. They would just be symptoms of a much bigger problem. And this is where he's been taking them all along. Rejection of me and practicing these things doesn't just mean you've rejected me and practiced these sins. It means you've rejected the gospel. It means you've turned. As he says, these false apostles have come in preaching a different Christ, a different gospel with a different spirit. You've turned to those things if this is still going on in your lives. Their rejection of Paul and practice of these things is a rejection of the gospel. And Paul says, if I I found you living in that sin, that's not as I wish, don't want that, 
You're beloved to me. I, I think of you as a father. But he says, if I find you in that, because I'm so concerned for you, then you're going to find me not as you wish to find me. That's as if, say, Paul has been very patient to them as a father. You can see that, how he bears with these Corinthians. He's been patient to them. He's even been patient to his opponents. I'm not just saying, you're done, get out of here. But he's willing to. Because he's concerned for them. He's concerned for their faithfulness. Patience has been shown by Paul, but it can't last forever. Because sin cannot be accepted in the body of Christ, which is the temple of God. It can't be accepted for the body of Christ, for their health. And so Paul, in his concern for the faithful in Corinth, in concern even for his opponents and these false teachers, in concern for all of them, he says, I am willing to do what it takes. I will not spare you. You will not find me as you wish if this is what's going on when I return. He's allowing them to continue for now, but to do it forever would be unloving both to the faithful and to these false teachers. And so Paul says to this, this to them as a warning. You look in verse 21, he says, I fear that when I, when, I am, when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, and the sensuality that they have practiced. This is a warning of the seriousness of the situation at Corinth. God, He says, may humble me. May humble me. If if we find you in this unrepentant sin, this would have been a a shameful kind of humbling thing for Paul before God, it seems, is what he's talking about. And I think we can understand and relate to it like this. It's it's like a father to this church. He's ashamed when his, his child is going astray. So he wants them as the bride of Christ to be this pure and spotless bride. And he's working toward that end. And so you can see how it would be a humbling thing if they're just going off in the wrong direction. I like what one commentator said when he said, Like a loving, responsible parent, he feels guilt and shame for the sins that his children commit. That's what he's getting at in verse 21. And every loving, responsible parent knows what this is like because you have a sinful child. If you didn't realize that, like, welcome to reality, your child is a sinner. Like, even from birth, like, they are sinful, they're bent on sin, against God, toward their own will. Like, it's just how it is. We can make that case other places. Just suffice to say, your, your child's a sinner. And, and you know this pretty well, I think, because you've probably walked into a Walmart in your life. It's like, I, Satan dwell there in some way, like... You could have kids that are behaving, they're doing well, they're like being nice to each other, saying please and thank you, they're like, they're being very giving, and then you take them into a Walmart, and like something switches off in their head, and they explode into these demon children. Like, and when that happens, when that happens, like you, you, you feel the shame, like, what is happening here? And you, you try to distance yourself in ways like, that's not, I don't know where that's coming from, like... His child here in this cart. Somebody around here probably knows who it is. That's what Paul is talking about. This is loving father. Like it would be shameful if you were continuing on in these sins that we've already talked about. I've already warned you about. I'm calling you back 
to faithfulness. He fears as a father that their sin is going to lead them in the wrong direction if they don't turn from it. The consequences are coming and the consequences will come from Paul. He is lovingly, compassionately, as a father calling to them as his beloved, warning them to turn from these things so that they don't find him as they do not wish to find him and he doesn't find them as he does not wish to find them. This is a genuine concern for Paul that has led him to this point where he's willing to speak the truth in love to them, willing to warn them and tell them, I will take action against this on behalf of Christ. They will be removed if this continues on. That's his genuine concern for them. And the question is, are we surrounded by trustworthy people who are that concerned for us? Who are concerned for, as Paul is, for our upbuilding. Are they concerned enough to do this kind of thing for us? And it doesn't just mean, are we in the community where that would happen, but also we are called as community to be that for other people. And so are we concerned enough for people to speak the truth in love and say, if this sin continues, like we can't just bear with this. We can be patient We can love, but we are extending the truth and calling them back to it, lovingly warning that Christ says that we cannot continue to go in this direction. Paul says if this happens, he he will mourn. It's not something he takes delight in because he loves these people. But it's something he's willing, willing to do because he loves these people. Now what we see from Paul in this passage is we see Paul is one who speaks in Christ. But we see also along with that the patience and love of Christ. Paul, he shows concern. He he warns, he waits, he's showing patience. He's saying, I'm coming to you. This is what will happen if this is what's going on. And even now, doesn't Jesus do the same? Speaking to us from His Word, warning us, turn from your sins, I'm coming again. Jesus shows this kind of love toward us. Paul warns them, Showing them that that patience isn't going to last forever. God calls to us knowing that that His patience will know an end. And there will be a time when something has to be done. Paul says, I'm going to visit you and I'm going to take action. Christ we know will return and take action. Those who are faithful will be gathered to Him. Those who are not will will experience His judgment. And that's when we're reminded of the goodness of God. That even now, even as we hear warnings, even as this Corinthian church hears the warnings from Paul... What they are is an invitation to respond. Paul is not giving them, this is it, you're done. He's warning them to bring them back. And God says that He's patient with us, not wishing that anyone would perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of who He is. And so God is warning, as Paul warns, out of His love and concern for who? For people. The ones that He was willing to spend and be spent for. And so let's hear the warning today. And let's, as a, as a body of Christ, let's, let's be concerned about sin in our midst. Let's be concerned with other people and what's going on in their lives. So that as a church, on the day when Jesus returns, we'll find Him as we wish to find Him. Triumphant, victorious, reigning over all. And He will find us as He wishes to find us. As pure and spotless as we possibly can be on this side of eternity. Amen. Let's commit to being that kind of community for one another. Let's pray together. Father, we have to first just thank You for spending for us. We are the poor. 
We are the ones who have nothing to offer you, and yet you love us enough that you came down after us, pursued us, and bought us with your own blood. And so in reality, what we're saying is that help us live in light of that work and that person. Help us respond rightly to that and go and do likewise. Being motivated and moved by the love that you have shown to go and love and care and be concerned for the people the way you have been concerned for us. Father, would you purify us as a church, unify us, that there may not be any footholds for the devil, but that we may be this pure and spotless bride that is a glory to your great name. We pray that would be so in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.